morning. Welcome all of you who braved the cold weather to get out here. Uh, those of you who are watching at home may be wiser than those of us here. Uh, let your cars sit for a day or two. Um, but we are indeed grateful for the sunshine and for the chance to dig into God's word and as we just have to sing of his promises. Grade 9 was a seminal year for me. Uh, I had, uh, we'd moved from Manitoba to Saskatchewan in grade 3. I was old enough to understand that I was losing all my friends and was at the bottom of the totem pole in the new school. Uh, by grade 7 and 8, I had kind of worked myself into the edges of the most popular kids in my class. And then in grade 9, we moved to Alberta, and uh, I was back at the bottom. And, and uh, actually, I think that's still, I mean, um, in the new school, I, I don't think I tried very hard again to, to make that journey. And it probably affects the way I deal with friendships and stuff even to this day, if you want to understand some of my problems. Uh, but I wasn't actually planning to say any of that. Uh, I wanted to talk about gardening. So uh, not having the little screen here is throwing me off my game. Maybe that's more important. Um, my dad and mom bought their first house when I was in grade 9. My dad was a pastor, and in those days uh, it was common for pastors to live in parsonages, Houses owned by the church instead of uh, buying their own houses. And so when we moved from place to place, we lived in ch ch houses and yards owned by the church. And my brother and I were quite excited, as I'm sure my parents were, to own a house. My, my dad had inherited some land, and he'd sold it, and they bought a house with cash in Delburn, Alberta. And, um, and we, we knew as young boys that now... We could build things and break things without asking the trustees of the church whether we were allowed to or not. So we were pretty excited about that. Um, the house was very nice, in good repair, but the yard was the worst yard in town. It was completely overgrown. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was waist high in thistles and quack grass and milkweed and brambles. It was... You, you literally couldn't walk through the grass. It was jo just so thick and grabbing onto your legs. Uh, it, was, it was really, really bad. Uh, and my parents, unlike me, absolutely loved gardening. So, uh, so they had visions in their mind uh, of this bramble. And uh, we were, as young boys, uh, teenage boys, uh, interested to help. We wanted to have a nice yard too and... and understood we own this house now and we wanted to make it nice and so my brother and I wanted to just get out the weed whacker and just cut the whole thing down but my dad would not let us he said we he made us go into that bramble with the hand clippers and get down and clip it all down and the reason is because he had an idea that some previous owners had probably planted some good stuff that was hidden under all that bramble and he wanted to find the treasures and sure enough, as we clipped and knelt on thistles and brambles and as we clipped through all the undergrowth, we found an apple tree, we found a birch tree, we found some evergreen trees, we found some, some uh, yellow struggling bulb plants uh, that, that couldn't make it through the thistles to get light and stay green and, and all of those things. And so when we cut it all down and found all the treasures, then... 
Then we had to dig big holes so we didn't disturb any roots. Uh, my dad wanted to move each of the trees to its certain location. He had a, he had a, a plan in mind for what this was going to end up like. The trees, the evergreens were too close to the house. They were going to damage the foundation. And, and so we did all that. We put all the treasures in the right places and watered them and, and uh, staked them up and tied them off so they'd, they'd be supported to grow. And then um, it was before, these were the days before Roundup. So uh, then it came, out came the rototiller. And if you've ever rototilled through an old overgrown sod, you know what that's like bouncing around, the kicking, and finally you get through it, and it digs and it jumps, and, and so we all took turns on the rototiller till the whole yard, front and back, was tilled up. And then, my dad made us get out ice cream pails and go down again on our hands and knees and pick every quack, quack grass root, every thistle root, and put them in the pails and burn them. And then on Monday, because he was a pastor, Monday was his days off, he'd till the whole thing again, and all week we'd have to go through the whole thing again on our hands and knees, and we started hating this yard. It was back-breaking work, and every time you'd stick your hands in there, you'd get thistles and, and uh, stuff in your fingers, and, and again and again. We did that all summer long. Till it up, pick the roots. Till it up, pick the roots. Sometimes he'd let it grow till there was a little bit of green and then we'd have to go through and wherever there was green, we'd have to dig in and get the root out that that green was attached to and then till it up again and then pick the roots all summer long. And so finally that summer was over, winter came and we could uh, go skiing and stuff and then uh, the next summer, he planted the entire yard, front yard and backyard in peas and potatoes. And the rows were wide enough apart that the rototiller could fit in between. And so it was rototill the, uh, the rows so nothing could get a, start growing. And then get down on your hands and knees again and pick every green thing out from around the potato hills and, and in between the pea plants. And the peas and potatoes were putting nutrients back in the soil and the boys were picking the roots out of the soil. A whole year, a whole summer of that. The next, or, or sorry, that fall, something changed though. My parents watched the weather forecast, the long range and the short range, very carefully. They were looking in the fall for just the right time, just the, exactly the right time. And when they, when they thought the forecast was exactly right, and it was just the right time after we had fertilized and, and done everything um, in that ground and tilled the manure in and all of that then they planted the whole thing with grass and the, the just the right time and they hit it right is they wanted the grass to just sprout before it froze because then in the spring those little grass seeds would have a little bit of root a little bit of grass and still a little bit of nutrient in the seed so when in, in the spring, when the snow melted, the ground would all be moist. It wouldn't have to be watered. It would be uniformly wet. And the grass would grow before anything had a chance to get in there. And sure enough, by the end of the third summer, we had by far the best lawn on our street. But it didn't come easy. But that's just, that's just the frame. That's just the... Uh, the dressing, the real point of all of it 
was the garden in the backyard. The trees, the grass, that was just the, the surrounding thing for, for their pride and joy. And so that summer in the garden, the way my parents did it is they'd plant a row of petunias, a patch of potatoes, a row of marigolds, a patch of a, a row of peas, a row of beans, a row of uh, some other flower. Uh, it was beautiful. But right at the front of the garden, where you could see it from the kitchen window, was the tomato patch. That's what my mother loved the most. And I remember, it's, it seems crazy to me, because I don't really like gardening. Maybe this is why I don't like gardening. But I don't really like gardening. But it seems, my, my, my parents actually sat in the backyard on their lawn chairs when those tomato plants had their first tiny little yellow flowers and sat there and watched the bees going from flower to flower. They were so happy. But this was the part of it that they couldn't do anything about. It had to be done by others, by non-humans. The flowers had to be, had to have the bees go from the male flowers to the female flowers and, and fertilize the whole patch. And when they saw that happening, that, that's, that's what it had all been for. That's the reason for all the work. And then the little nubs of green tomatoes, and then they grow and grow until we had the big, the big uh, ripe uh, tomatoes. And I'm kind of mashing things together and fantasizing a bit, but you understand what I'm talking about. And then they brought in the first potatoes, the first peas, the first beans, the first onions, the first tomatoes, made a beautiful tomato and onion salad, put it all on the table, and we feasted on the produce. Now, I tell you this story because I know that Jesus in the Gospels, of all the different topics he talked about to illustrate the kingdom of heaven that he was bringing into fruition, he used gardening and farming uh, stories and metaphors more than anything else. He used a lot of different kinds of metaphors and stories, but those are the key ones. We have to understand them if we want to understand what he's talking about. And so I use a gardening metaphor to try to situate us in the story in terms of beginning the Old Testament. So in, in this story that I've told you, the Old Testament, right up until looking at the weather forecast for just the right time, that's the Old Testament. All the backbreaking work, all the stuff we have trouble getting through, all the work, all the preparation, all the getting it ready, that's the Old Testament. It's important. It has to be done. It has to be there. We need to understand it. But, it's, but, but that's, that's what that is. And then uh, just the right time, as the scriptures tell us, that's when Jesus came, at exactly just the right time. The conditions were perfect. And then Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, that's the flowers and the bees and the tomato patch. We can't do it. We don't have a hand in that. We just have to sit back and be grateful that God's doing it, that God's done it. But when it's done, the fruit grows. And that's the church, the body of Christ, the mission of reaching the world. And that banquet is still to come when it all comes together. So we're at this stage now as we enter the New Testament going through book by book. We're at this stage where, where the just right has happened. The flower has been fertilized. And we're ready to grow fruit. 
Not that the others isn't important, and it's all part of the process. The, the saints of old in the Old Testament, their, their role is just in vital, as vital in the story as ours. But this is the spot where we're at in the story. And it's the best story that's ever been told. It's the best story that ever could be told. And so, um, just by way of introduction, I, I was going to show you on the screen how to get to this, but I'll maybe have to send that out an email if I can get them working for next, uh, next Sunday. But I've been working on a background story, the best story ever. And it started out on our webpage already. You have to go to the sermons page, and then there's a thing to click on to get the reading schedule that's on your pews, uh, which dates I'm going to be looking at which books, so you can read them as we go along. But then there's another thing to click on. <laughs> it sounds complicated. You just, you just click on the buttons and read them. It's not hard at all. And that'll bring you to, to the recordings I'm making of the best story ever. And I'm doing a little bit of a detailed background of the, of the book of Acts and, uh, and the maps and all of that. So that when we get to Galatians or 1 Corinthians... I'm not going to stand here every Sunday and tell the whole story to give you the context of the book. But if you want to dig a little bit deeper and understand a little bit better, you can go through our webpage and listen to that story and get it in context. And uh, so I'm going to take the books in the order they were written, except for Luke and Acts, which I'm using as an introduction. And Acts really provides the the story behind um, where all of the the uh, books, the letters, and stories and things that we have in our our New Testament come out of and fit into. It is a little bit of work because the New Testament authors didn't, didn't tell us where in the story of Acts different letters were written. But if we look at what's written in the letters and what's written in Acts and stuff, we can quite easily piece it together. I haven't done it. I've looked at other scholars who've done it uh, and, and understand where in the story these, these letters uh, originated. And it helps us to understand them a lot to put them into that context. So that's going to be there. I hope to get those recordings done this week or next week for sure. And then you can start uh, listening through that on your own and, and getting the background. But next week I will go through the book of Acts. This week it's Luke. Luke Acts really should be thought of as one book in two, uh, two, uh, two chapters or, or two issues. Uh, Luke, I think, makes it quite clear that he's continuing the story in Acts that he started in, in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, to understand um, why Acts is structured the way it is or, or ends where it does and starts where it does, uh, I think we need to understand that what, what Luke is really doing is he's, he's giving the message that this thing that started of old with Abraham is for the whole world. Now, the, uh, there's, he follows mostly the story of the Apostle of Paul. And there, there's other apostles, there's other disciples who were with Jesus, who took the gospel out. In fact, we have, we have a little bit of possible evidence that Andrew actually made it to India in bringing the gospel. Now, some don't think he went that far, but he definitely went in that direction. And there's some indication in the archaeology that he might have got till in, till in, as far as India bringing the gospel in that direction. And, and all, the, all the disciples did different things. But what God has given to us to reveal himself to us is the story mostly of the Apostle Paul in the book of Luke and Acts. And I think the reason for that, if we, if we understand the ancient world, is, is really quite easy to understand. 
You've all heard the phrase, I'm sure, all roads lead to Rome. Now that was a, that was a, a phrase, that was a way of understanding the world that was just common in those days. Rome was the center of the world. If your idea got to Rome, it could disseminate everywhere. If your idea caught root in Rome, if you had influence in Rome, then you had, you had influence across the world, the whole world as they knew it. And so what Luke does is he, he, he takes this thing from the Old Testament and in, in his gospel he connects it to the Old Testament. And then in Acts he says it goes from Jerusalem to Rome. And his message is, this is for everybody. Because if it takes root in Rome, then it's for everywhere. That's how people understood the world in his day. And so to, to write it that way was, was very specific uh, choice of what he was going to write. And so if it makes it to Rome, then it's going to go everywhere and it's for everybody. And uh, that's the overall uh, picture and so we're going to jump into that this Sunday and next Sunday and then in the coming Sundays in the letters and Gospels as they come up in the story. I just want to talk a little bit then about the Gospel of Luke itself. Um, there's, there's so many things a person could talk about and I've chosen to focus on seven prayers. Remember what Byron said? Seven it's a key number. Um, Luke presents Jesus to us as the perfect person to imitate. The other Gospels present Jesus as a king or as a suffering servant, but, but Luke's primary idea or his focus is the perfect person. And that's due to his audience. He's writing as a, as a world-traveling doctor. He's writing to the people of the Greek-Roman world, and that would be a concept that would be uh, highly attractive or understandable to them, because uh, they were always looking for in their philosophy for the perfect example of every different kind of thing. And so Luke is saying to Theophilus, his, his sponsor, who's funding his research, uh, I found the perfect person, after which all other people are images. And, and ought to be uh, imitating and trying to be like this one. So, the first prayer, uh, Luke records seven times when Jesus prays. And I think the word that he uses for that is translated into English as prayer or praying is uh, significant here. And the first one is in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So we have this, this picture. I mean, it's quite a common picture. It actually doesn't say if Jesus was still in the water or not, but that's how we picture it. John, John the Baptist had just baptized him, and he's coming up out of the water, and he's wet. And in, in Luke's rendition here, he's praying. And, um, and in that moment, the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends. And God speaks to, to Jesus, yes, but also to the people around. And it's recorded that we would still know what God assesses or what God says 
the word prayer, Jesus, he was praying. So in that moment, Jesus was praying. And the word prayer is, is to, I haven't checked if it's every time, but it's, it's most often, or if not always, translated as praying or prayer in our New Testaments, and that's the appropriate, correct translation. But the actual uh, literal translation is wishing forward. As Jesus was wishing forward, the heavens opened and God spoke. Now you can see why we translate that prayer. Uh, But it's a specific kind of prayer. It's not wishing backwards. It's not wishing the present to be different. It's wishing forward to what's ahead. And this is how Jesus was praying. And right there, God says these significant words. You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Who of us does not long for that assessment? You are dearly loved, and you bring me joy. We search for that in our friends. We search for that in our marriage partners. We search for that from our parents. We seek to pull that out of our children. We seek for it in our toys. We search for it on the internet. We build things around us that look impressive, you know, beautiful green lawns. Because we want to hear someone say, you're special. You're dearly loved and what you are and what you've done gives me joy. Is that not the motivation for so much of our action? Would you say 50, 60, 80, 90, 98%, 100% of what we do? Are we not searching for someone to give us that assessment? special. Your existence gives me joy. And this is what Jesus received as he came up out of the waters. And as he was wishing forward, as he was looking at his present space and time and wishing for a future in prayer. God said, you are my dearly loved son in whom I am well pleased as one translation puts it. The people around must have understood that if Jesus gets that assessment from God, then he is the perfect person that we should all seek to imitate, seek to be like, the person to follow, the one to be an image of, the one that we should wish forward to being ourselves. If God gives that assessment of Jesus, then what could be better than being like Jesus? What could be a higher, more satisfying goal than being like Jesus? God is saying in Luke's gospel here, I'm inviting you towards perfection. Here's my son in whom I am well pleased, who I love dearly, 
invite you through him to become a person that also receives this same assessment from God. Now, we don't have all of that in that one story, but because we know the gospel and we know about the resurrection, we know about the coming of the Holy Spirit, we know that this is the promise that is given to God's people, that we could be made into the likeness, the image of his son, and that will be the final assessment when Jesus finishes work with us uh, in all eternity, that that will, in fact, be the assessment. But I'm jumping way ahead. We've only gone through one of the seven prayers. Let's jump to the second one. In Luke chapter 5, verse 15, um, Jesus has just instructed the people not to spread the news of his healings and of his works, to keep it kind of a secret. And then it says in verse 15 of chapter 5, But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray, to wish forward. Now, I think that's hugely significant, and Luke emphasizes that sort of thing throughout his gospel. What are the crowds saying when they refuse to be silent, when they refuse to to not tell the stories of his power like he asked them not to, and and the crowds grow, and they come around him, and and it says vast crowds came to hear him preach. The crowds are saying, You are dearly loved by us. You bring us great joy. That's what they're saying. And what does Jesus do as the crowds on earth give him the same assessment that God did? He actively tears himself away from the crowds and goes off by himself recognizes the temptation to seek that appraisal from the people instead of from God. And he goes alone to the mountains to wish forward, to wish past these crowds, to wish past this fame and these acolytes to something else, something greater, something lasting. Because he knows as much as they love him right now, they're not going to love him forever. And that's true of everything and everyone that tells you on earth, you're special, I love you, you bring me great joy. And we clamor for it. No way I'm going alone to the mountains when these people want to hear another video from me on the internet. No, I, I got I to... Gotta, hear their voices. But Jesus took himself away on purpose because he knew it was not lasting. He actively acted in this world to take himself away from the praise of the crowds in order to pray, in order to wish ahead to something. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. And as he prayed to God, all, and he prayed to God all night. So again, we don't need to say much about this because it's exactly the same thing as the, fir, uh, as the previous one. 
Uh, soon after, the people were climbing around, and he again went off into the mountains to pray all night. And again, the word translated literally as wishing forward, taking time out of his life to long for what is not yet real. Taking out of his day-to-day life all the things that seem so important to get attention and instead go off to the mountains to wish for that which is not yet. That's how he prayed. That's what he was doing. Chapter 9, verse 18. One day day Jesus left the crowd to pray, pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do people say I am? So here again, the crowds are threatening. And I think it was an actual temptation for Jesus. I mean, he was the most famous person in all of Palestine at the time. He could have turned those crowds into a lifelong life of fame and fortune. And I think he recognized the temptation and that it was attractive to him. And so he went again, this time taking his disciples into the place, lonely place to pray, to wish forward, and uh, think beyond, uh, beyond the now. And he, he asked them an interesting question. Who do people say I am? Oh, you're the greatest prophet ever. Oh, you're Elijah. Come back. And, and so on and so forth. The people are giving you the highest praise they know how to give you. Jesus says, who do you say I am? They don't have a solid answer yet, but he's training them. He's training them to be like him and wish forward to something else, something better, something permanent. They killed those prophets. If that's what you're looking for, if those are the accolades, if those are the voices that you hope will tell you you're special, they can turn on you in a dime. It's not lasting. It brings to mind... um, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before, the parade here in Wainwright, and the and the the vehicles go past right past uh, our house pretty well, and and uh, you you have the this this strange situation. Parades parades are pretty weird, aren't they? But you have the biggest fire truck and the biggest tractor and the loudest siren and the the fanciest convertible, and people all want to sit in these things, and then the people along the street say, "Yay!" You're special. It's just a little microcosm of, of everything that's that, that we're talking about here. If my tractor's bigger than yours and I drive by in the parade, then I'll get more praise than the other person. If my convertible's shinier and I throw better candy out the window than the other guy, I'll get all the accolades. Everyone in town will say, oh, you're special. We love you. Jesus saw that kind of thing and he took himself away alone to wish for that which was not yet real. To pray. He actively tore himself away and this time he took his disciples along to show them, to teach them. They'd observed him doing this and now they were being brought into that to learn to do it for themselves. In Luke chapter 9, again, 
a little bit later on, verse 28. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James, now just three of the disciples, up on a mountain to pray, to wish forward. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. And we refer to this as the transfiguration. Some of the old prophets came to speak with him. Peter thought we should set up tents and never leave this mountaintop. It's the perfect place. And what's happening here is God was giving the disciples a little glimpse of what Jesus was praying about, about what he was looking into the future to see. The transfiguration, the time when, when, when time doesn't have the same meaning and you can talk with the prophets and you can talk with Jesus and God's presence and, and everything is light and beautiful and the, the worries of this world have gone away. And it's just for a short time there, but God opened their eyes to see what Jesus was seeing, to see what, what he was praying about, what he was thinking, this, what I'm suffering now, is worth enduring because of that thing in the future. And so the disciples saw what Jesus was doing and how he was praying, how he was living for God as a human on earth, the perfect person. I had a picture that, uh, the only one I wish I had, out of all the ones I, I made. But you might be able to picture it in your mind, and I'm going to see if I can get it right, because it's not written down here. Always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Then always be Batman. You've probably seen it, most of you. It's, it makes us laugh. It's kind of funny. But it's very attractive to many people. And the reason is because it expresses what we're talking about. I mean, the world tells us just be, just be the best you you can be. Don't, you know, don't judge the other person. They're just doing the best they can. And, and that's all true and that's all good. I don't, I don't decry that at all. But we read the certain we, we, and, it, and awakens within us or expresses something that we know is there even if we don't believe in God that yes, I'm trying to be the best me I can, but if it, I could only be something better, something stronger, something that actually brings good into the world. And I know I'm falling short of that. If I could only be Batman. See, Batman's a good one because he's a mixture of good and evil. We kind of relate to that. Jesus isn't a mixture of good and evil. But it's the same longing, it's the same desire in us that makes that joke funny that makes people want to put on that shirt. But we don't pray that way like Jesus did. We tend to pray wishing into the past that it would be different and wishing into the present that we could have better food, a car that starts instead of a battery that's dead, an ant without a sore toe, you know, wishing into the present. And that, Again, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But Jesus' example here is he's tearing himself away from the things that are so attractive and taste so good here on earth and forcing himself to remember, to pray forward into something so much better. 
Luke 11, verse 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying. As he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. See, they're catching on. They're catching on, right? Wait a minute. The way Jesus prays is not the way we pray. The things he prays for are not the things we pray for. He's always longing for that which is not yet real. He's not praying that he would avoid the suffering. He's not praying that Lazarus wouldn't die. He's looking forward through these browns, the tomato flour, to the fruit, to the banquet. And he's praying in such a way as to say, if I have to go through this brown to get there, it's worth it. It would be so easy to sit on the edge and think that the rocks we can play with are so nice compared to the thistles, not going in there. So they say to Jesus, teach us to pray. We've, we've just realized by your example that we don't know how. And you know the prayer that he taught them. You say the first part with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You know it. We don't have to say all the way through. See, the, the daily bread, the praying for now, that, that's in there, but it comes after the other stuff. That your kingdom will become real here. Wishing forward to what we already know is, pre- is real in God's presence and wishing that it would be here with us, whatever the cost. That's what Jesus was doing. And his disciples realized, and they asked him to teach him, teach them, and, and he did. Your kingdom come to this earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer of Jesus that he was praying in the mountains. The last of the seven prayers in Luke's gospel, or not prayers, they're not given to us except for this one, what Jesus prayed. Luke chapter 22 Verse 39. Then, the, then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, Pray that you will not be given in, not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and wished forward. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. It takes on a new meaning when we see it in the context of the way Jesus prayed, doesn't it? He knew what lay ahead. He knew the suffering he would suffer. And he knew that he could choose a different way and get the crowds back on his side become the hero on earth. He knew that. He didn't want to suffer, as none of us do. 
But he looked through past the cross. He wished forward, it says, to beyond, to that which was not yet real and could only become real through the suffering. It's a question. You know, if the disciples had been paying attention in that garden instead of sleeping, will Jesus wish forward and look through the suffering to grab a hold of that which is not yet real? The thing that can only come by traveling through the valley of the shadow? The thing that will make the first statement at his baptism true? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. He is dearly loved by God. You bring me great joy. See, if Jesus had turned here, then that statement at his baptism would not have been true. If he had prayed a different way, would he have had the strength now for this trial? Can you and I learn to pray this way? Lord, whatever it takes, I wish to be like Jesus. I wish for what is not yet real in my life, but I know you've promised. And I will walk the road. And I will reject the crowds. There's so many things in this world that hold out the promise that they can tell us, you are dearly loved and you bring me great joy. So many things. From the physical pleasures to the relationships we have with people to the right outcomes and projects we're working towards. Maybe we, we've lowered our standard and it's just, just get us through COVID and we'll, we'll be happy. And God's saying, no, I've put brambles in the way. There's treasures in there if you, if you tr- seek them out. But there's a path that I will take you on if you follow my son. Can you and I pray this way? God says to us, my son is the perfect person that I had in mind for all people to be like. He is the perfect person whose image you will become. The more clearly you seek perfect maturity in him, the more you'll be drawn to that goal and the less you'll be drawn to the goals of this world. The more you'll be willing to persevere anything to become like Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, God says, I'm inviting you towards perfection. So I want to do a little contrast. There's there's two kinds of maturity. There's, um, There's one that I'm going to call apparent maturity, and there's one that's called 
perfect maturity. Apparent maturity is is a person that any one of you would look at, look at their life, look at their conduct, look at their behavior, and say, there's a mature person. Perfect maturity is a little bit different because sometimes when you look at someone that's on the path to perfect maturity, it doesn't look so good. So here's, here's a comparison. Apparent maturity seeks approval of earth. Perfect maturity seeks the approval of heaven. Apparent maturity seeks to numb the deeper longings of the heart. I'm not going to go after that really deep stuff because it's not reachable. And I'm going to go after a little bit a little bit shallower stuff. But perfect maturity is willing to explore the deeps, the deep longings. And sometimes it gets ugly. Sometimes it doesn't look good to other people when you're in the middle of that, of that exploration. You know, things like confess your sins to one another. You don't appear mature to me when you're confessing your sins to me, do you? Apparent maturity would never do that because that doesn't appear to be mature if you've still got sins. But if you're after perfect maturity, you're willing to explore the deep places, the deep longings. Apparent maturity can sometimes be achieved on earth. Perfect maturity will not be satisfied in this life. That's why Jesus taught us to pray this way, wishing forward. I'm praying for the things that can't be till the resurrection. That at least in some measure they'll be formed in my life now. But reaching beyond. Apparent apparent maturity pleases people. Perfect maturity pleases God. Apparent maturity feels good to work on. Perfect maturity often feels terrible to work on. That's a hard one to swallow for me, but I believe it's true. Apparent maturity, I mean, I mean, give me a little self-help book and a little group to read it together with, and I can improve my communication with my wife, and, and you can all pat me on the back and say, you're doing better than last year, Marvin, and it feels really good. And I can overcome a habit I don't like in my life, and and I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that to some extent, but, but if we're after perfect maturity, it doesn't feel good like that often. Because it's not about improving my communication skills. It's about realizing that I'm an evil person that wants to suck the life out of my wife. I'm an evil person that seeks to hear from my children that message that Jesus heard from God. You give me pleasure. How evil is that? But if I'm going to work on that stuff to become perfectly mature instead of just appearing mature to other people, that's going to be a different road. And in the process, I might not look mature to you. Apparent maturity can only be achieved through the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, people that don't even believe in God can reach a 
it's not the real thing. It's not the thing that lasts for all eternity. It will be burned away. It will be shaken. Apparent maturity is a building up process. Perfect maturity is a breaking down process. Apparent maturity, the rewards are now. Perfect maturity, the rewards are delayed. This is depicted to us in God's word as two paths. One that's wide and full of light. Has nice attractions on the side of the road. That path is attractive as it looks. It doesn't go very far. It only goes if you're a singer till your voice cracks. If you're an artist till your eyesight goes. If you're a mechanic till your fingers can't hold the tools anymore. If you're a father till your children choose a different way and reject you. If you're a cook, till you get too wide and you got to do something else. It, it's an attractive road. And it holds out all the promise that it will tell us again and again. You give me great joy. You're a special person. We love you. And there's another path, and it's much narrower. And it looks dark, and it looks like it's going downwards. Thistles and brambles and swamps down there. But it's a longer road. And it leads to an eternity with God. It leads to actual perfection. It leads to the place where God will look upon you as you stand in faith in Jesus Christ and say, You are my perfect child in whom I am well pleased. You bring me great joy. And when God says that, we will be satisfied forever. And that is why Jesus taught us seven times he prayed in Luke's gospel. Luke teaches us. And the way he prayed was he wished forward to that day, to that assessment, willing to suffer whatever it takes here. In Luke's gospel, God says, I'm inviting you 